This is The Future Of, a live fortnightly conversation where host Santilla Chingayape talks with creative thinkers about the brave and bold ways we can make a better future. Presented by State Library Victoria. Hi everyone, welcome back to the Future Of series brought to you by State Library Victoria. My name is Santilla Chingayape and I am the host of this series. Before we begin, I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners on the land of where this broadcast is coming to you from and also where the State Library is located, uh, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I'd like to pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging, and also acknowledge any Indigenous elders that might be tuning into this broadcast today. So the future of is a sort of a, a future-looking podcast conversation series where we discuss a whole host of uh, subject areas um, with you know some incredibly um, talented people. And this week, we're sort of thinking about the future of the office. Obviously, that's been brought into the spotlight because of the pandemic. And so we're trying to figure out, are there ways to reimagine the office? And to join me to discuss this further is Gideon Haig, who is an independent journalist with over 30 years experience across print, web, television, radio and radio journalism. His 40th book, The Momentous Uneventful Day, examines how offices have shaped our culture, cities and collective history. Welcome, Gideon. And just to let everyone know that might be tuning in, that you can um, sort of participate in the conversation by using the hashtag SLVFuture. So that's SLVFuture. So Gideon, my first question to you, I guess, is how did you set about wanting to look at offices? I mean, what, what what's the fascination with offices? Well, I mean, the irony of this is that I don't actually work in an office. I haven't worked in an office for 25 years. That's as a result, I have sort of fond and nostalgic recollections of working with other people when I've spent a lot of my time working on my own, you know, as a journalist and a, as a writer. You know, the pursuit is fundamentally pretty solitary and actually other people can often get in the way of what you're doing and be a bit of an irritation. But uh, but I've always had a bit of a, um, a fascination with work and the way in which people define themselves by their work and the, um, the way in which they... Uh, proclaim their personality, the way in which people combine themselves to achieve a common purpose. And I've had a bit of a fascination for popular culture uh, set in office spaces, both the um, both the distinctive and the um, and the uh, undistinctive. You know, it's fascinating to me that a series like The Office, television series, has been adapted, I think, in over 30 countries. And yet the fundamental trope of you know, an idiot boss and and malcontented workers somehow translates and is instantly recognisable across all sorts of cultures. You know, the office is a genuine an American culture that's 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 been exported. And uh, I mean, I wrote uh, ten years ago. I wrote a book called The Office: A Hardworking History, which is a kind of a vast and sprawling panorama of of the evolution of offices. Uh, 200,000 words, more you can ever possibly want to know about uh, about offices, reminded me that uh, the office is always evolving and we're always talking about the future of the office and somehow the future never arrives. But maybe in this particular generation that uh, we got a glimpse of what the future might look like and that was a phase that was worth describing. Mm. But So before we talk about the future, I'd, I really am curious about the evolution of the office. Um, in in the book, you, you write about how traditionally sort of offices and home were sort of intertwined. And you talk about, you know, 
that was essentially where people carried out their work. So I'm sort of curious about how that evolution sort of ended up in the sort of shared spaces that we now recognise as offices. Yeah, well, I mean, office work, you know, the idea of sort of bookkeeping and um, uh, tallying and uh, doing deals and uh, writing correspondence under the one roof and at the same time, uh, it's... Uh, for as long as there has been commerce, there has been uh, some sort of need to keep a record of where things are going and, and how things are and who's doing what to whom. And the first place that that was usually done was in an area that was set aside, uh, you know, a, a corner of a granary, um, uh, the kitchen table of the farm, um, the uh, um, some some area where scribes and clerks were able to commune. The scale of business was in those days so small that it could be done from a from a single a ledger, uh, that it could be done from a, from a single place. As the scale and the scope of capitalism grew and transportation needs, uh, transportation costs declined and the communication costs um, dwindled, it became possible to separate the bookkeeping or the, the back office part of the um, of the enterprise from the productive part of the enterprise, and uh, you know that's that's you can probably date that to the industrial revolution. That's when it begins. That's when capitalism really you know gets begins to get get its rocks off. But the idea of a kind of a um, uh, of sort of a, a post-industrial capitalism really begins to take root in the early part of the, the 20th century, where um, uh, new markets. Up. The scale of a, of a consumer society is being created and the necessity is passed on to um, those managing businesses to create means of uh, bringing key aspects of an operation together and achieving volume. And so I guess in terms of, because in your book you write about um, how, you know, the conversation about rethinking or reimagining what uh, office work looked like has been about since around the 1970s. But why did it take a global pandemic for us to really be having these conversations about what office work look, looks like and where we're situated? We've had these conversations before. Uh, we've had them in limited ways. Um, thinking about the offices, is, it's a little bit like newspapers. It's very bloody repetitive. You know, it's very bloody easy to just go back to the office. It kind of works, doesn't it? It kind of works. Um, it's fit for purpose. There doesn't seem to be enormous scope for innovation into it. It's a pretty conservative workplace. Uh, it's about getting the job done rather than looking beyond the, the horizon. Uh, there hasn't been significant cost pressures. That's one of the key things that's emerged is that we've kind of worked out that offices actually cost quite a lot of money, real estateities and the cost of commuting and of bringing people together, that is a considerable expense. And if you are looking for ways in which to protect a business from a downturn, you are always looking to take costs out. And one of the ways in which people uh, not only secured uh, the uh, purity or the, or the quarantine of their offices, but also reduced their cost base was to, was to push people back from working into the home and selling it to them as, a, as both a safe and a more convenient alternative. Now, don't forget that this... Um, Working from home wasn't about our convenience. It was also mm. about our owner's convenience, our proprietor's convenience. And it kind of suits them. And I think it was it surprised uh, the corporate world how quickly and easily people made that transition. Now, if you'd said at the start of 2020 that, you know, 80% of workers over the course of the next year were going to be working from home, people would have, A, they would have wondered why on earth they would have done that. 
but B, they would have thought it was unthinkable. And how could it possibly be accomplished? But it is amazing what you can accomplish when you absolutely have to. And I guess that reawakened in us, it reminded us of our long-term ambivalent relationship with the office. It focused us on why we tackle work in ways that are kind of um, so abiding and, and so almost old-fashioned. This idea of uh, the two ideas of office work taking requiring synchrony to take place at the same time and co-location to take place in the, in the same area is something that really dates back to almost the, the, the factory. That's, that's, a, that's a factory definition of, of work. So why in the 21st century would we still be thinking that way? What other purposes has coming together and doing office work served? Um, because I think, you know, aspects of the digital technology that we, um, that we enjoyed or we enjoyed the fruits of last year have been available to us really since the mid-1980s. They've existed for a long time. And yet we've continued to migrate to separate office spaces. We've continued to undertake this almost mindless commute every day to and fro uh, without really questioning why we, why we do it. Mm. And all of a sudden last year we got the opportunity to pause and reflect and think about what office life might be like in the future. But could an argument be also made that there is benefits to office work? I mean, I haven't worked in a traditional office for four years, so I, there's a part of me that while I do love working from home and, you know, being flexible with my, with my work schedule, I do miss the routine and the structure and I, and I do miss, you know, the sort of social aspects of working with, with other people, whether it is, you know, there's a funny line in your book about having to chip in to a colleague's birthday that you wouldn't necessarily be fond of. Um, I actually do miss those aspects as, 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 as much as, because it's sort of, there's this idea of, you know, there's a, there's a, there's, there's, there's a part of the human psychology that, uh, that I reckon that when you're in a workplace, it forces you to be a little bit more tolerant, a little bit more accepting. Whereas when you're sort of at home and in your own bubble, you're kind of limiting yourself to um, a singular experience. And I don't necessarily know if that's a good thing. No, I mean, you know, speaking from personal experience, which you tend to do when you're discussing offices, despite the fact that I've worked for 25 years from home, I didn't enjoy working from home last year because it was my only choice. That was the only place that I could work. The pleasant part of working from home was that I didn't actually always have to. I could go somewhere else. There was some sort of variety to my daily routine. When I simply had to sit there, when I simply had to be chained to a chair, and frankly, I should have been among the chief beneficiaries. I've been doing this for a long time, but I didn't enjoy it. Perhaps people enjoyed the novelty of it last year. You know, there was a lot to be said. There's a lot to be said for a change in routine, isn't there? Every now and again. Uh, and it wasn't quite as um, it wasn't quite as depressed or confronting as it could have been. A, it was safe. You weren't going to catch anything. Mm. You were in the, the um, familiar and, and comforting. A location of your of your own home, you were spared some of the tiresome aspects of office work, getting dressed and trying to look your best, and commuting both ways, and you know, that the irritating parts of the of the routine that that we all know and acknowledge. Uh, if it had continued, maybe we would have become aware of some of the some of the downsides, some of the downsides that you were talking about. And what are the benefits? Well, the benefits are obvious, aren't they? Find out what someone is doing just simply by looking across the office, mm -hmm. by calling across to them and saying, what are you up to? Can you come over here? That's 
incredibly cheap means of communication. There is no cheaper form of communication than simply calling over to someone rather than having the ritual of kind of having to get onto a Zoom call or a WebEx call or a Teams call and find out what someone is doing and going through all the protocols and all the formalities of, uh, of scheduling a meeting and carrying out the meeting over a fixed period of time and then ceasing that meeting and lining up for another meeting. It actually becomes incredibly regimented and, and, and tedious. And of course, collaboration is so much easier when you're working alongside someone than having to sort of holler at them across the divide. It was interesting, I was on a plane yesterday up to, to Sydney and I fell to talking to the person next to me and he was a, the chief executive of, a, of an engineering company. So I asked him what he was up to and he said, oh, I'm coming to Sydney for a meeting. I said, just for a meeting? He said, yeah, just for a meeting. I said, really? Uh, that's interesting. He said, yeah, three months ago, I would have done this by Zoom. But we're, at a, we're an important part of the um, manufacturing process of a particular component. And the easiest way for me to explain it is to sit in the same room as the person and eye them across the desk and have the artifact in my hand and be able to pull it apart and explain it to him. He was doing it. He was saying, you know, in the end, that was my takeout from, uh, from, from 2020. Um, that was what you have to do uh, in, in this particular domain. And this was an engineering company. This was a scientific company. This was a high-level sort of pre precision machine company where you would imagine that an awful lot of things could be done by documentation and the exchange of, of electronic information. But in the end, it was something as old-fashioned as that that was the only way to accomplish it or to cross a particular hurdle. I suppose you probably answered this question already, but is, is the office dead, I guess? You know, is, is, is this idea of, you know, going into a specific building, um, being there for a set amount of time, doing a job and then leaving, is that, is that version of office work dead? Well, I guess the question I would want to ask would be, do we actually want it dead? I mean, does it, does it not actually serve... Uh, purposes other than those which, which we readily identify. I sometimes think that we're at the risk of underestimating the importance or the social usefulness of the divide between work and home. Mm. Um, the commute was irritating, but it did actually serve as a kind of a mediating environment where you left behind your domestic self and moved into your professional self. And which worked then in the opposite way, which when you were leaving work, you were able to leave your professional self behind and, and resume your life as a, as a person. My fear from the start of the pandemic is that the idea of, of remote work spreading everywhere is that it'll cease to be working from home and, and become living at work. Mm. Uh, that, you know, at least when, you, when there was an office and you could close the door behind you, uh, and you could get home and maybe change into something more comfortable and commune with your family or lose the opportunity to do that. We condemn ourselves to the rhythms of work rather than anything else because we all know the rhythms of work uh, in a competition with, uh, with um, domestic circumstances always seem to win out. They always seem to priority. Mm. They always seem to be. It's very difficult to switch yourself off, mm -hmm. and I think... Um, It'd be very easy to see bosses and corporations taking advantage of that. I mean, they've already been huge beneficiaries of, of what mm -hmm. took place last year. They're basically getting another two hours of work out of us, aren't they? Mm -hmm. That commute that we took at the start of the top of the day, that hasn't become our time. That's become their time. Mm -hmm. um, people are working longer and working more arduously, and they're consoling themselves with the idea that they're doing it in their pyjamas, but they're still bloody working. And I guess I also wonder who this adversely impacts as well. And, I, and I'm thinking about this from a gendered perspective because I sort of think that if you are a working mother, for example, um, or if you're taking on the bulk of the unpaid labour 
um, in the home and then coupled that with having to do your work and that blurred line between the professional and the domestic. Um, I sort of wonder, because I think early studies that came out uh, last year around the pandemic found, it was looking at academics and it was sort of, it's found that male academics were sort of uh, researching more and, you know, contributing to a lot more journal articles where women weren't as much just because they just didn't have the time and they, you know, had all these other uh, demands on them, on their time. And I do wonder, I mean, who who does this who does this future benefit? You know, is is are we likely to sort of start seeing these gender disparities as a result of um, a lot of this burden being placed on on women? Because that's just what the data shows at the moment. Absolutely, there is a genuine abiding gendered difference, the boom in, in remote work. You know, dad is always busy with his stuff. It's just that harder to, to interrupt, whereas yeah. mummy is always more accessible and always more um, the, the person to whom children naturally turn. So women are, I think, significantly disadvantaged um, in an ongoing sense um, uh, from uh, the, the move towards working from home. I, I, quote, I quote similar research in, uh, in, in my book. Um, you know, there's been, now been some quite large-scale studies of, of what's actually happening. And uh, that is definitely a phenomenon that's emerged. Mm. So if we are to look to the future um, and we have the opportunity to sort of reimagine what this office work life looks like, is it a split? Is it spending a couple of days in a structured office environment and a couple of days at home? I mean, it, what what's the happy medium in terms of, um, yeah, like what, what is the happy medium? Well, I think one of the things that, that the... Um, the success of working from home has reminded us of, and one of the one of the reasons why people have gone, you know, actually I could get used to this, is because of the the bit of the open plan office, which has kind of destroyed the idea of private space in the workplace. And people suddenly in their home got back a bit of privacy. They actually got the opportunity to do some uninterrupted work. There are so many bloody interruptions in a, in a workplace these days. Uh, we almost seek them out if we if we don't find them because we've become so accustomed to our to our work work taking place in spurts and uh, uh, and digressions and uh, and um, uh, diversions. So people got got into their home last year and they thought, you know, I can get things done. There are there are fewer distractions here. So we quite we quite like that. We welcome that. The years the need that workers have for privacy and they've done it basically for cost reasons. You can push more people into a space, but if everyone can hear your telephone conversations, if it is impossible to achieve any kind of uh, privacy in the workspace, that is an inhibition. Culture, culture actually does require a degree of, of privacy and the ability to, to collaborate without everyone overhearing you. So, so if 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 we are to have workplaces in the in the future they are going to have to take greater cognizance of that, or we are going to have to come up with a, a means by which um, the, the workplaces that we have are geared towards those parts of work that are genuinely collaborative and that do need collaboration. I was actually at dinner last night with a guy in Sydney who's an, who's an entrepreneur who said that, um, that he's, he's actually working on the scaling up of a, of a, of a major venture. And he was saying that uh, that one of their takeaways from last year is that yes, they desperately need collaboration. It's impossible to do this dedicated workspace that allows kind of twenty five people to be in it at the same time. But they've also decided to make it mandatory to take one or two days off every week in order to just get on with stuff, mm. get on with stuff, because you can spend all the time talking about doing stuff and never actually getting around to doing it. So, uh, so I think people have learned some some important lessons from uh, from what. 
working from home is is good for. I only hope um, that they use it in a, in a way that's that's constructive, and that they recognise the limitations of the kind of the digital tools that that we've ended up using, not like the tools that we're using now, mm. Santilla. You know, there are definite there are definite drawbacks to it. Periodically across my screen, the legend appears: your internet connection is unstable. And that worries me, you know, that disconcerts me. I don't want it to drop out. That makes me anxious. Mm. I feel as though I can't give the best of myself to this conversation. So sorry if I'm gibbering or, or not making sense. I think eye contact becomes quite difficult under these circumstances. The eye contact is quite is quite volatile, isn't mm. it? You're sort of looking around, you're not quite sure where to look. You know, I've got a cropped view of you at the moment. I can only see your your head and your shoulders. You can probably only see the, the, the same of me. That's not a natural way to interact with another person, is mm-hmm. it? You want to see more. You want to be exposed to. You're deprived of all the cues that you get from, from someone else's body language that tell you whether you're, they're genuinely interested in, in what you're saying. You're stuck in the same place. I'm chained to this chair. I can't move out of shot. Otherwise, you wouldn't be able to hear me or, or see me. We're stuck in rigid turns, aren't we? You question, I answer. That's not a real conversation. That's, that's mm. I know, it's an interview structure that we have to resign ourselves to. Uh, and there's also a kind of a time delay between what you say and what I hear and, ha- and how I respond. And I'm not even sure whether people out there in the audience are listening to me at the moment. These are all things that we've become increasingly aware of over the course of, of the last year, and they're disturbing. So we're learning all the time, and hopefully we'll draw the right lessons from it. Um, But I get the feeling that what will happen over the next few years will be decided by macroeconomics rather than microeconomics, if you know what I mean, that it will be the depth of the recession that that we fall into or the depth of the economic slowdown around the world that dictates the decisions that we make around offices because of the the huge costs and uh, and resources and, and energy that they absorb. If you're looking to make a major cost cut in an organisation these days. The low-hanging fruit is to say people start working from home and we can mm. we can reduce this, uh, our, our office footprint. And that, that will be arbitrary and that will be capricious uh, and that will not be to the benefit of work, that will simply be to the benefit of the bottom line. I wonder then, does it worry you for future generations if the office as we know it ceases to exist and we're predominantly forced to work from home and that they might not know what it's like to work in an office or, you know, have to share a, you know, open plan office or um, loiter in the kitchen, you know, the office kitchen. Like, do you do you worry that future generations might be missing out on those sorts of things? That I wouldn't try to sell it to my 11-year-old daughter. You know, I wouldn't try to say to her, you know, just think how fantastic this, this office thing is that you, that you missed out on. But I would try to explain to her that it did have benefits um, and that uh, some of the pleasures, some of the incidental pleasures of office life were, were considerable and some of the advantages of, of being able to bring people together under the same roof were, were not to be neglected. Uh, we may not know what we lose in the process of the, of the office potentially becoming extinct. Uh, we may not recognise it. One of the one of the nice one of the nicest lines that I know about um, about office life. Uh, it's in a, uh, a it was in a piece written last year by a woman called Lucy Kellaway, who was the management writer for the for the Financial Times for many years. Very droll, um, uh, dry, astute, uh, quite acerbic critic of management jargon and management thought. Uh, she left the Financial Times about four years ago to become to start working from home. 
and one of the things that she said was that the office had given her the opportunity to be her, a better self, mm. to be a smarter, cleverer, more polished, more professional version of herself. She kind of dressed up to be this person in the office. And it was there was a there was a performative aspect to it to, to go into the office. When she began to work from home, she realized that all of a sudden she was the same person everywhere and it was boring. You know, she'd lost that playful aspect of her life because there is a lot of play in the in the course of going to an office and creating a persona for yourself and, and living up to it, living down to it, living sideways to it, and seeing other people undertake the, the same the same routines and uh, and proclaim their individuality in the face of mass conformity. In some ways, there's nothing more heroic than that. Mm. Well, I mean, I guess that's a good note to end the conversation on. <laughs> Slightly nostalgic about um, offices. Didn't think that that would ever happen, but, you know, here we are. Um, it's been such a pleasure talking to you, Gideon. It's, your book is incredibly fascinating and insightful, and um, I think everyone should get a copy so thank you again for your time and for speaking to us from your office on a hotel balcony um but amazing where anywhere you can find wi-fi these days potentially it's go. an office there you go thought never well, escape thank you again and thank you to everyone that tuned into this conversation the future of will be back in a fortnight where we'll be talking about dining the future of dining so hopefully you can tune in then. Thanks, Thanks so much, Santella. Good to speak. The Future Of is a fortnightly conversation produced by State Library Victoria. To help make a brighter future for the series, please subscribe, rate, leave a review or share it with your friends. You've been listening to The Future Of. To find out more, visit slv.vic.gov.au and search for The Future Of.